Welcome, friends, to this week's episode of Footsteps of the Messiah. This is going to be an extended episode. We may break up into two, so we will see how it goes. But there is much to share, so let us jump right in. ברוך אתה אדוני אלוהינו מלך העולם אשר קידשנו במצוותיו וטבענו לעסוק בדברי תורה. Blessed are you Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by his mitzvot and commands us regarding Torah study, engagement in Torah study. So, Parashat Kittetze is read this week of August 20th, 2023, and on the biblical calendar it is Elul 9 on Shabbat. Remember, every day we read Psalm 27 during this period, and I believe we covered that last year in our 30 Days of Elul podcast marathon, where we almost got 30 abbreviated episodes in for 30 days. But, back to Kitetse. So, this week's parasha has the highest number of mitzvot out of all 54 Torah parashiot of the whole entire year. There are 74 mitzvot. Some uh, in this parsha. Some of the highlights are the Shte Nashim, the rules for two wives, the Bin Soer, the stubborn and rebellious son, the hanging of a man on a tree, the prohibition of taking him down before nightfall. And this should immediately take your mind to Yeshua's execution, which was really a murder since he was innocent. And uh, he became a curse, but we'll cover that in a few moments. And many other meets vote, including, and this is an interesting one, the bird's nest, which is considered one of the lightest or the least and the lightest of all the meets vote. We may actually spend some time on this since it relates to the words of Yeshua in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. So here's a synopsis of Ki Tetzay. It spans from Devarim 21, verse 10 to 25, 19. So if you've been following the last of Rupashio, you have heard a lot of mitzvot recited and reviewed since the beginning of Devarim chapter 1. Devarim is called Mishneh Torah, the repetition of the Torah. So that is one of the big reasons why. So let's take a look at the 74 mitzvot listed herein. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. We'll go through some, but not all of them. All right, so returning lost objects is a big one. When someone loses something, we are to go above and beyond to return it to its owner. Also burying the dead and protecting the mother bird before removing eggs or babies from the nest. Those are two different ones. Burying the dead as in humans and then also protecting the mother bird. Uh, those are some we find this week. We see the mitzvah of fencing around the roof of a new home. Taking precautions to remove hazardous areas where someone could get hurt. Also the mitzvah of not mixing such as kilaim, meaning grains. The or species, the combination of two different species of plants or animals, and the mitzvah of shatnez, mixing certain kinds of fabric, mainly and maybe exclusively wool and linen. I don't know if that's carried into other combinations in modern times. These all have deeply significant meanings, some of which may be found in commentaries and by doing word studies. That is beyond the scope of our podcast today for all those mitzvot, but I hope to get into it in the future. Now, the mitzvah of tzitzi is repeated here, and also how to fairly eat on the job for agricultural workers. Also, we see a review of what happened to Miriam, the punishment of tsa'arat for Lashon Hara, is a reminder here of when she spoke Lashon Hara about her brother Moshe. Now, that was in the parasha of Tazriah or Metzorah. I believe we read those together this year because we weren't doing extra parashiot and it was not a leap year. 
Finally, we come to the last mitzvah of the mitzvah, I believe, of the parsha, which is a bit of a contradiction in terms. We are commanded to remember to forget the name of Amalek because he was a satanic nation that came to strike the stragglers, the weak, and the ones who lagged behind as Israel left Mitzrayim. So we must remember to erase the memory of his name, much like the name of Haman, boo, boo, hiss, hiss, who also tried to destroy Am Yisrael. Yimach Shimam, may their names and memories be blotted out forever. So let me go back for a moment to the man who is hung on a tree. Now, here's some interesting things about that. So we see in Devarim chapter, 21 verses 22 through 23 that a curse is placed on anybody who is hung on a tree now there wasn't crucifixion back then it didn't exist matter of fact sometimes they would um, like in the book of uh, I was going to say the book of Purim in the book of Esther they would have a pike or a sharpened stake that was like a giant sized stake and they would torture people by impaling them on it um, from like the groin up through the body and maybe like through the neck. It was really gruesome and a horrible, horrible way to be killed. But they might have been stoned first, so they might have already been dead. But regardless, uh, capital offenses covered by the Torah, um, stoning in those instances was usually the form of capital punishment. Now, on some occasions, the body would be hung as a further deterrent to crime. And the Torah made it illegal to do so overnight. And we see that in Leviticus 18 and Numbers 35. Now, the Apostle Paul or Shaul from Tarsus, uh, Rav Shaul, uh, talked about this mitzvah or this law in relationship. I really don't like calling any Torah or mitzvah law because it's not the right translation. But anyway, this commandment uh, he referred to in relationship to Yeshua and how he was killed. And in Galatians 3, we read, Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the Torah, which there are curses in the Torah, by becoming a curse for us. What do curses do? They bring negativity and death, right? So the Torah still remains, just an aside here. But the curses have been nullified by his death for those who put their faith in Yeshua. So it is written, and he quotes, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And from the Torah, Yeshua was cursed for us, hanging on the on the execution stake or the tree, which I don't call it a cross. Cross is way too romanticized and too nice. It was like an electrocution, I mean, a, a, a capital punishment tool, much like an electrocution chair, an electric chair, I mean, or a lethal injection. So let's not glamorize it. Hanging on the tree on an execution stake as a substitute, as a kapara, as an atonement for our sins. The Torah in uh, was foreshadowing the redemption of man. Now, here's interesting. Here's an interesting connection. The cross of Messiah, I'm sorry, the execution stake of the Messiah, the tree on which he was hung, was sometimes referred to as a tree. And as you can see that in Acts 35, I'm sorry, Acts 5, verse 30, it says, uh, uh, Elohei Avinu, the God of our fathers, raised Yeshua, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Acts 10.39 says they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And you can also reference Acts 13. So Acts 5, 10, and 13. The concept of cursing and blessing 
in association with the tree is found in the larger narrative of scripture. Look at Genesis 3, where Adam and Chava, or Chava and Adam, eat fruit from a tree, but they were forbidden to eat from. So in Revelation 22, we return to this eternal Gan Eden state of existence, which includes those who eat from the tree of life. And a tree was involved in how sin came into the world through the tree in the garden, when they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to. And then the answer, the resolution to sin and mortality, is through the tree that Yeshua was hung on. And ultimately, the removal of sin uh, forever is through the tree of life. So trees and trees and trees, trees helping trees, and trees helping people. So, uh, under the Torah, Yeshua was to become cursed, and, but it was illegal to leave the body hanging overnight, right? So the Torah applied to Yeshua, who was executed on a tree, even though he was innocent. Now, he was, he was removed around sunset or before the sun went down, but God still counted him a curse. Now think about this. The reason, I believe, the main reason why it says there was darkness that the for three hours, three hours of darkness during the crucifixion of Yeshua. Why? Because technically that made it the next day. When does the day start in Judaism? The day starts at sunset. Well, I believe Hashem made the sun go down early because the sky needed to become dark so he could be considered a curse. Okay, and you'll find that in, I believe, Matthew 27, Mark 15, and or Luke 23. All right, so... Back to our commentary on the next part of the part shop. So I'd like to take a moment to speak here about the bird's nest and the mother. So you have to send away the mother bird so she will not view the removal of babies or eggs and thereby be sad. And this shows us the overarching thing of Hashem's Torah teaching to us that we must be compassionate to all creatures. Now perhaps someone who happens upon this nest needs the eggs for food or the babies to raise them and then use them for eggs or food as adults. But don't just abruptly take the babies from the mother in front of her. Now, I'm going to jump back into the Gospels, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. It reads, Do not think that I came to destroy... This is the, these are the words of Yeshua. Excuse me, of Yeshua the Messiah. Do not think I came to destroy the Torah or the Prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one yod, or one tagin, or ke, like the, it says tittle, but that's a from the Greek. There's no word in Hebrew called a tittle. So one decorative stroke will by no means pass from the Torah until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, the mitzvot, and teaches men to do so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, the Malchut Shemayim. But whoever does and teaches them, meaning whoever does the mitzvot and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sofrim and the Prushim, you will by no means enter the Malchut Shemayim. So, two of the biggest questions I see here are, what are the least and the greatest commandments? 
And second, how do you make sure your righteousness exceeds that of the Sophrim, the scribes, and the Purushim, the Pharisees? I mean, Yeshua directly connects this instruction and the observance of Torah, just above it, to entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And right above it, Yeshua himself explained, there would be a ranking and a hierarchy within the Malchut Shemaim based on observance of mitzvot. Now in Judaism, the idea of a lighter and weightier commandment, a mitzvah, existed. The greatest or weightiest mitzvah commandment was the Shema from Devarim 6, which we read a few weeks, we read a few weeks ago. What's interesting is that by proclaiming the greatest commandment and observing it, one is said to be living their life for the kingdom of heaven. Within the morning prayers and in the Aleinu prayer, there is the concept that we pray for to be under the yoke of heaven. In Hebrew, it is Ol Hashemayim, spelled Ein Vav Chaser Lamit. If you know Hebrew and say the prayers regularly, you know the word I'm talking about. Ol, O-H-L, maybe, is how I would spell it, uh, transliterated. You know it comes up if you read these prayers daily, at least twice in the daily prayer service. So what is the kingdom of heaven, really? I think Yeshua tells us it is living within the framework of the Torah with a goal to be righteous to each other, not to be better than others. So he plainly states that the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sophrim and the Purushim, the ruling class running the Jewish world at the time, they had some level of righteousness because you have to if you observe the Torah at all. Only there was corruption and a lack of ahavat chinam, love, baseless love or love without reason, unconditional love in our modern terms. So doing the mitzvot connects us via the yoke to the Malchut Shemaim, the kingdom of heaven. And Yeshua affirms the Shema is the greatest commandment in Mark 12, verse, verses 28 to 34. So we see a reference to how important the Shema was or is in Talmud, Tractate Sukkah 42a. Speaking about a father's obligation to his children. It says, if he knows to speak, meaning the child, his father must teach him Torah and the reading of the Shema. Well, Torah, and it says Torah means what? The first verse. So, the two things, and that's the end of the quote, where it says the first verse. Reading of the Shema means what? It, they ask, and then they answer it, the first verse, meaning the first verse of the Shema. So the first two things a father is instructed to teach his children as soon as they can speak is Torah. And there's a connection to the entire Torah here, being represented by the reading of the Shema. So summarizing the mitzvot and explaining the goal of all the mitzvot by way of stating the Shema was exactly what Yeshua did. Let me read that again. Summarizing the mitzvot, Yeshua summarized the mitzvot and explained the goal of all the mitzvot by way, vis-a-vis, -vis, of stating himself that the Shema is the greatest commandment. Centuries later, it is noted in the Mishnah, Barachot 2.2, that an intentional declaration of the Shema caused one to obtain the kingdom of heaven, which is like saying, if you observe all the mitzvot in in with your kavanah, with your intention, then you obtain the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's impossible for any one person to observe all the mitzvot because they don't apply, all the mitzvot don't apply to any one person. Um, some apply to women, some apply to men only. Some apply to Leviim, some apply to only the Kohanim. Some only apply to the Kohen Agadol, etc. Some only apply if you live in the land of Israel. Some only apply if you are in certain uh, uh, careers or or uh, uh, 
uh, for workforces. So I didn't count myself, but the kingdom of God I read, doing some research on this, is found in the Gospels and Epistles 68 times. And the kingdom of heaven is found 31 times. That's a total of 99. The Targum, which is the Aramaic translation of the Tanakh, says in Isaiah, Yeshayahu 9, verses 5 through 6, A child is for us, a son is given to us, and he has received the Torah upon himself to keep it. This is a prophecy of Yeshua, the Messiah, being born of a human and receiving upon himself the yoke of heaven and complete dedication to the Torah, which is appropriate since he is the word that became flesh, as we see in John chapter 1 in the Gospels. So, back to the questions, what is the least or lightest commandment? We see the novice is expected to do the most weightiest of commandments, the Shema. Others are important and cannot be ignored. But the initial observance of Torah is of high importance and necessary. One does not work up to more significant meets vote by way of less significant ones. But let's look at the other end of the spectrum, the lightest or least commandment. So if the heaviest or greatest mitzvah rewards the person entrance into the Mahut Shemaim, what is the reward for the least mitzvah? Well, funny you should ask. It is actually connected to the reward for the greatest one. Now, it does say, and I'm not going to get too much into this, that you shall be rewarded with length of days if you do this mitzvah with the tzipul kan, the, or kan tzipul, the nest of the bird. We will, be able, we will be held accountable for how we view and observe the least mitzvot also. If even one of the lighter mitzvot is neglected, it can mean serious trouble. The words of Yeshua do not get enough attention, but look at Mishnah Avot 4.2. Shimon ben Azai says something similar to Yeshua. Ben Azai said, run to a light commandment and flee from sin. Sounds simple, right? To pursue his ways means our devikut, our devotion to the kingdom, has us treating all the mitzvot as equal. The least mitzvah, albeit different in reverence and knowledge, and even its occurrence, because it occurs way less often than you can even do this mitzvah. Sorry, it occurs way less often so that you hardly get a chance to do this mitzvah, if ever. Uh, and I'm about to reveal the least mitzvah, but the least mitzvah needs the same alacrity and attention that the Shema does. So we don't see what the specific mitzvah is in the Tanakh or even in the Gospels or Epistles. The Talmud Yerushalmi in Tractate Kiddushin, chapter 20, verse 2, says, The mitzvah that is least in the least is this, meaning the lightest of the light. You shall send forth from the nest, Shiluach Hakan. Now, we see this in our parasha this week. The, the Kansipur, the nest of the bird. Devarim 22, verses 6 through 7. And it is quite mysterious, too, in that the Hebrew has some unique things about it. And even the opportunity to try to catch a mother bird is difficult. As Rabbi David Foreman of Aleph Beta says, a modern rabbi, meaning in this year, 2023, 5783, if you've ever tried to approach baby birds, the mother will go nuts. He doesn't say nuts, but will go, uh, get very excited and very agitated and flap its wings and even attack you and try to give her life to get you to go away to protect her young. And there's the idea of overconsumption. What do I mean? Well, it's egregious to take the lives of the babies 
hand of the mother or to separate them and take the lives of them together in one situation. So you have to you have to let one of them go and it says to send the mother away. Even though it is particularly speaking of birds here, it pertains to the egregious taking of life and potential extinction of any animals. Uh, you should not take or kill the young and the parent of any animal at the same time. It could be to extinction extinction of a species. And, and a gross trampling of the boundaries of how life is sacred of all, of all of Hashem's creatures. Now, interestingly enough, this mitzvah holds a special place in the words or Yesh of Yeshua himself. But yet, it is very understudied. It's very um, under given little attention. And Yeshua says that dismissing this mitzvah, this commandment, will impact the kingdom and one's rank in his kingdom. So why the severity? Let's look more closely at this mitzvah. So the bird's nest must be encountered and cannot be intentionally sought after, but rather only a natural occurrence by accident. The bird's nest must be encountered in the way, the derech, along the path, not be found on one's own property, but found as one traveling or uh, abroad. The nest must be in a tree or on the ground. So this is um, condition number three. The nest must be found in a tree or on the ground. It cannot be resting on a man-made structure. Uh, the, next, the nest must contain nestlings or eggs. Number one, two, three, four. Number five, the nest must have the mother there in the presence of the young. Number six, the nest must have the mother resting upon her young. If and only if these criteria are met, only then is it biblically acceptable to send the mother away and take the young while she doesn't have to watch them being removed, a gesture of mercy. If any of these criteria, criteria are not so, then you cannot do this mitzvah. These requirements are the basis for making this or labeling this the least commandment. So the chances of being able to do it just so are very rare and have an extremely low probability of occurring. But yet Yeshua still brings it up and says that it is to be observed and taught about. Now let me ask you, how often do you find a bird's nest on the ground and not on your own property? Okay, I mean I found a baby bird twice in my life, but never an entire nest with the mother there. So there's no, there has been no opportunity in my 50 years of life to send a mother away and even do this mitzvah. Now it doesn't say what you may do with the young birds once they are taken. You could put them back in the nest, you could set them free, you could take them and raise them. Uh, I took the two baby birds I found over the years in two different instances to wildlife refuge. And they put them in you know, a heated area to keep them warm and raise them and then they uh, release them in a wildlife preserve. So the spiritual aspect of this mitzvah was pondered upon by the sages. It actually has a messianic point to it, and the purpose was connected with the coming of the Messiah himself. So interesting. It is so interesting that Yeshua would choose to comment on this particular mitzvah, albeit in a hidden or concealed way. The messianic view needs an analysis of the Hebrew, which not enough students of the Bible possess a strong enough grasp. So, I encourage you, friends, learn Hebrew. Start anywhere with your studies. Just start. That's the most important thing. Start with words. Start with pronunciation. Start with vocabulary. And my uh, pronunciation has evolved, but the more you practice, 
and talk with Israelis and people who pronounce it properly, the more you will learn to pronounce it properly. When you pronounce words, you're creating things, you're creating reality. So learn how to pronounce Hebrew correctly and read it properly. So the verse 20, by the way, in the book of Zephaniah, I believe, Zephaniah chapter 3, plus I think 26 other places in the Bible, it says that the original tongue of the Lord and it will return in the day of the Lord is Hebrew. So verse 22, verse 7 of Devarim, sorry, chapter 22, 7 says, you must certainly send away. But in Hebrew, it is shalayach teshalech. I believe that's how it's pronounced. I'm not looking at the Hebrew right this second. Sending, you will send. Now, Messiah is the holy agent in heaven, sent by the Kadush, Kadosh Baruch Hu. And in Hebrew, the word for agent is Shaliach. An agency or ministry in modern Hebrew is Shlichut. Uh, some people pronounce it Shlichus, but that's just the Ashkenazic pronunciation of the Tav into an S sound. So, since Hashem sends the Messiah, the phrasing in the passage connects to the sent one of Hashem. And it is stated twice, which in Hebrew is always drawing your attention with this emphasis. So in Hebrew, if you see anything twice, it's an emphasis. And I believe this is where the idea comes from of let there be two or three witnesses. So if you see two proclamations or two things, something repeated in scripture, it's drawing your attention to it. This is important. And also it could be, for instance, in this case, two comings of the Messiah. Uh, now, in traditional Judaism, they believe that there are two messiahs, two different people, Ben Yosef and Ben David, coming at two different times. Uh, believers in Yeshua, as Mashiach, believe that it's one man coming in two different roles at two different times on the calendar of God's 7,000-year plan. Now, the only other place I could find we see this phrase is about Moshe, uh, the doubling of uh, let me let me read it from me from the Torah here properly so you hear the after I got on my platform about Hebrew I should read it to you from directly from Devarim chapter 22 verse 7 so we're in parashat kitetse and 22 verse 7 thank you for your patience all right. All right. Let the mother go and take only the young in order that you may fare well and have a long life. Shaleach teshalach. Et ha'em ve'et habanim tikach lach. Lema'an yitav lach ve'ha'arachta yamim. All right. So, Messiah is a holy agent in heaven sent by the Kadosh Baruch Hu, and we get the word apostle from the Greek, which I don't know offhand, but it may be apostolos or something like that, but this is the same word, shaliach, an apostle or a sent agent. So, since Hashem sends the Messiah, the phrasing in this passage connects to the sent one of Hashem, and this, the only other place that we see this phrase, or some, a, a very close version of it, is in Shemot, Exodus chapter 4, verse 13. Vayomer bi Adonai, shlach na bayad tishlach. Excuse me. Sorry, I don't think I'm going to be able to edit that out. I beg you, O Lord, send now your messenger. These are the words of Moshe, which is implied 
And then, with whom would you send? So the word, the phrase I just read, Vayomer bi Adonai shlachna beyad tishlach. With whom would you send? Is the literal translation. Now, last week or two ago, we see the famous prophecy of Devarim 18.18, where it says Hashem will send a prophet like Moshe. And this was believed to be the Mashiach. So let me read that to you briefly. I'll start in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from among your own people, like myself you shall heed. Navi mikilbecha mikebecha meachecha kamoni yakim lecha Adonai elohecha elav tishmaun. And you shall listen to him. This is just what you asked of the Lord your God at Chorev at the day, on the day of the assembly, which, by the way, is a Bayom HaKahal, which is a prophetic name for the day of the Lord, saying, Let me not hear the voice of the Lord, my God, any longer, or see this wondrous fire anymore, lest I die. Whereupon the Lord said to me, They have done well in speaking thus. Now he repeats it, okay? 18. Navi Akim Lahem Mikerev Achehem Kamocha Venatati Devarai Bafiv Vadiber Alehem et Aleph Tav Kolashel Atz Venu. So it says, God Vadiber, and he will speak to you. But if you change these words, I mean, change the vowels, Vadiber Alehem et, it could also say Vadiber Elohim the Aleph and Tav, the beginning and the end, symbolically. I will raise up a prophet for them from among their own people like yourself. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And if anybody fails to heed the word he, Yeshua, speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. And then it talks about prophets who presume to speak in the Lord's name. All right, so... Let's look at a midrash. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting. Uh, okay, so in Devarim 18.18, just to recap, where it says, Hashem will send a prophet like Moshe, says it twice. I never knew that before, in verse 15 and verse 18. And this was believed to be the Messiah. Now, and they quote this in the Gospels. They say, is this the one who was promised? Or is this the, the Messiah? As it, as, uh, is he Moshe? Is he Elijah? And we see the character of Moshe pop up quite a bit in the Gospels. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting. The Midrash Devarim Rabbah, chapter 6, verse 7, says, There's a excuse me, special spiritual reward for hastening the Messiah's arrival. It says, another explanation, and I'm quoting, and then it quotes, What means you shall, oh, sorry, what means, quote, you shall certainly send away the mother, end quote. If you fulfill this mitzvah, you hasten the coming of the King Messiah as it is written of him. Do send. How is this? As it is stated, who sends, they pose a question, who sends the foot? Sorry, I think this is a statement. The question is, how is this? Okay. And the answer is, who, meaning he who, sends the foot of the ox and the donkey. So two animals, and we have to figure out who they are and what, what they're symbolic of and why they're mentioned. Now, this is from Isaiah 32, verse 20. We're going to come back to the Midrash. But Isaiah 32, verse 20. By sending the bird away, 
the Lord also may send Yeshua. Now, why was sending the mother away from the nest connected to bringing Messiah? I don't get it either. So let's see. The Bible connects the ox and the donkey to the Messiah as well. Now let me back up. When they state the answer to the question, you shall certainly send away the mother. What does that mean? If you fulfill this mitzvah, you hasten the coming of the King Messiah. This was in Midrash Rabbah, uh, Midrash Devarim Rabbah, verse, uh, chapter 6. And they answer their own question, do send. It's written of the King Messiah, do send. How is this? As it is stated, he who sends the foot of the ox and the donkey, which they're quoting from Isaiah chapter 32, verse 20. Now, by sending the bird away, just want to clarify. By sending the bird away, the Lord also may send Yeshua. Now, why was sending the, the mother away connected to bringing the Messiah? The Bible connects the ox and the donkey to the Messiah as well. The Chazal, the sages, blessed be their memory, saw in Midrash Barashi Rabbah 75, chapter, uh, verse 6, the ox and donkey in symbol form. The ox, this is the priest anointed for war. As it says, Devarim, chapter 33, verse 17, which we'll read in a couple weeks, his ox is the firstborn of his glory. The donkey, this is the king Messiah. As it says, Zechariah 9.9, humble and riding upon a donkey, and etc. Okay, so the ox is the firstborn of his glory. The priests were supposed to be taken from all the firstborn originally. And it's going to go back to that. I believe we see that in the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel. But beyond the scope of this teaching. So uh, this is what the sages say, that an ox is connected to the priesthood. Also, ox is a kosher animal. So uh, what changed was the uh the the originally the levites were supposed or the priests were supposed to come from the firstborn of every tribe but they were it was rewarded to the levim because they were the only tribe that rose up and uh killed all the worshipers of the egel zahav the golden calf in the book of shemot so the ox is understood to be the firstborn and he is the priest anointed for war so his role is to offer as in korban an offering or sacrifice. It, it, korban or animal offerings should not be called sacrifices. That's not an appropriate translation. But the priest offers his life or sacrifices his life to serve in this role as he intercedes on the field of warfare. The ox, on the other hand, is a symbol of the suffering of the, sorry, I didn't mean the other hand. The ox is also a symbol of the suffering of the Messiah. Now this is my interpretation my quoting because maybe because it is a burden maybe because it is a burdened animal always working and wearing a yoke to tread out grain and it carries the burdens of the toil of developing the land in order to provide food now i'm not sure about that that's just something i came up with on my own that is not from the sages in simple form the lightest or least commandment has within it the idea of sending forth it could also be that the Shekhinah, which Yeshua discusses himself in Matthew 23, is connected to this. I believe it is very obvious. Now this is interesting. At the beginning of the chapter, he even addresses his Talmudim, his, his students, his disciples, and he refers to the scribes and the Prushim and the chair of Moshe. 
Then Yeshua spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The, the Sofrim and the Prushim have seated themselves in the Kisei Moshe, therefore the seed of Moshe, from Exodus 18, Parashat Yitro. Therefore, all that they tell you, do it and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say and do not do. And in Talus and Italics it says, for they say things and do not do them. And this, I believe, is an allusion to Jeremiah 27 to 28. They tie up heavy loads, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their tefillin and lengthen the seat seat, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the shukim, the marketplaces, and being called by men, rabbi. But do not... I don't want to go into another whole thing. I don't want to get into that. Uh, but the greatest, verse uh, 10, 11, verse 11. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And we see that is a quote from, most likely, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. All right. So, my point, though, was that he discusses the Shekinah, so let me go deeper into chapter 23 and find that reference. All right, so it's verse 37. Oh, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim. He says it twice because there are two Yerushalayims. And we see that in Galatians, I believe it is chapter 5, which I believe... We're going to cover, we just covered recently, or we covered last this week, but, alright, so now I'm talking to myself, well, actually this whole podcast is talking to myself, because I don't know who's out there, but, we do see in Galatians chapter 4, or 5, yeah, chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, that there's a Jerusalem above, and a Jerusalem below, so, back to Yeshua, 37, uh, Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, who kills the Nevi'im, the prophets, and stones those who are sent to her, who are sent to her, the Shlichim, the apostles, any, any sent one. <coughs> Excuse me. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers, a hen is a bird, right? Gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That's a reference to the prophetic destruction of the second temple. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's a direct quote from Psalm 118, verse 26, the Hallel Psalms, which are said both every Rosh Chodesh and at every festival. So, Yeshua himself makes the simile, the comparison of himself as the mother bird and the people of Yerushalayim as the young birds. And you could say that the mother bird is the Shekinah the, the, or the Ruach Kodesh, because it's a feminine, both are feminine words. Ruach is a feminine word. Uh, Shekinah is a feminine word. And mother bird is a feminine creature. I mean, a, a female creature. So any mitzvah, the idea is, any mitzvah from the least to the greatest causes Hashem to hasten the coming of Mashiach. And in our view, as Yeshua people, the return of Yeshua for the beginning of the day of the Lord. All right, so that concludes our commentary on the Torah. And now we will take a look at the Haftarah. So, now to Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 10. Now, this chapter is also read 
in several weeks for Parashat Noach. In, in meaning, in a few weeks from now, several weeks from now, for Parashat Noach, when we come to it, Isaiah 54 is read again. Because a few verses later, it mentions the Me Noach, the waters of Noah. So, this Haftarah, once again, at the risk of repeating ourselves, is not directly connected to the Parashat HaShavuah this week, but rather to the season of seven weeks of consolation. This week, we are in week five, leading us to Rosh Hashanah. And I am looking for deeper insights here as to the seven weeks, counting up or down, as it were, to Rosh Hashanah. But I think I shared a few weeks ago that I believe Hashem is leading us to see the beauty and completion in the seven weeks, and they give back more than double from the three weeks of admonition. Get it? Three doubled would be six, and we get seven weeks of comfort and consolation uh, in relation to the three weeks of admonition and rebuke. So, there are ten weeks total from spanning from Shiva Sal, but Tammuz, 17th of Tammuz, all the way to Rosh Hashanah. Which makes me think immediately of the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments, and also the Ten Days of Awe that are approaching between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So, as for the Haftarah this week, this is possibly the longest episode I've ever recorded, so this will be brief. And if you read the Haftarah, that this last part in mind, or keep this last part in mind, the idea of a mother being separated from her children, and even being widowed, as it were, you will see a great connection, or a great deal of connection to the parasha. And I would say unintentionally, but I believe this is all Hashem's doing. So, the first verse speaks about Yerushalayim as a barren woman. And funny enough, it says it twice. Barren one, that's one. And then it says, you who bore no child. I mean, it's kind of cruel to say it twice, as if Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, who Hashem or the prophet is talking to, needs to be told two times that she failed to have children. Personally, I think it's alluding to the two temples. It failed to sustain its womb, Yerushalayim that is, and its banim, its children. Its children, um, and the phrase children, uh, it, there's a really interesting interpretation of Isaiah 54, verse 13, which says, And all your children shall be limude Adonai, students or studiers of Hashem. It also says it twice, but there's a trick in Hebrew that if you change the vowels, it could be read bonai, meaning your builders. In other words, the letters spell both words, but a slight variance in the vowels for the unindoctrinated in Hebrew. You can change the vowels, keep the consonants the same, and it can mean something similar or vastly different. Or make a connection between concepts, and I'm going to show you how. They are connected, bonai and banai are connected because children are the builders of each new generation. The corruption and all the reasons that the temples could not stay standing and the, the, the reason the Lord had to destroy them and exile both uh, exile Israel, Israel both times, this connects to the idea that the builders could not be sustained. The children of the next generation never grew up to take over because the adults finally reached a level of evil that the land in the Beit HaMikdash had to be evacuated, and that the land in the Beit HaMikdash could not tolerate. Really, it's Hashem couldn't tolerate it. After 70 years, Hashem returned them the first time, after the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in the year 586 BCE. But this exile that we're in, this Galut we're in, since this Gola that we're in, since 70 Kamen Era has been almost 2,000 years. Now, it continues, the, the Haftarah continues with the motif of and I quote, for but a small moment have I forsaken you. The idea is that enduring suffering,
for the sake of Hashem is only for a moment, but the end result will be his return, and we will be rewarded. As it says, with everlasting kindness, will I have compassion on you? Now the sheer amazement and awesome new reality of the messianic age will be unquantifiable, and makes this existence, the olam hazeh, the age we're in now, incomparable, to say the least, in our time. Hashem and the power of Yeshua in our lives seems concealed and limited, especially during times of struggle. When the Ein Sof, the Eternal, is revealed, Ein Sof means without end, it's another name for Hashem, the Eternal, uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Blessed One, may, may His name be blessed, is revealed, if only through His Messiah He is revealed. But all physical limitations we feel now, and are constrained by in this present age, when those are gone in the age of Messiah, in the coming age, in the Olam Haba, all of these sufferings will be a distant memory in the light of Hashem and His Messiah. In the reborn, resurrected, renewed world, when it returns to the level of Gan Eden, when our existence and reality in this world returns to the level of Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. So, if you're listening, if you're in the minority that hung in for this extended and very verbose and lengthy discussion, then Yashakoach, Yashakochem, thank you for listening. And please, Hashem, Bezrat Hashem, we will be back soon next week for one of the last Haftarahs of the year. And we never like to end this broadcast without inviting you to make Yeshua the Lord of your life and your salvation. So, I will finish my reading a passage from the Gospels, from Matthew 24, verse 8 through 14. But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. He's talking to the people of that time because there was a, a coming uh, period of birth pangs before, uh, before the city, as the city was destroyed. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will be, will arise. We talked about false prophets a little while ago in Deuteronomy 18 and will mislead many. And because of Torah lessness, because of forsaking the Torah and maybe civil law too, uh, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. The words of Yeshua. It says the love of many, in another translation, will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel, this good news of the kingdom, shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. So, please send any comments or ideas to footstepsofthemessiah@gmail.com. Shalom, shalom, and have a beautiful week. And a wonderful, restful, meaning Shabbat. And please, God, Bezat Hashem, we will see you next week.